As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding with thanksgiving. Beware lest any spoil you through philosophy or vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the base demonic elements of the world and not after Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in a physical body, and you are complete in him. Colossians 2, 6 through 8. Hello and welcome to Nightlight. In pre-World War Germany, there was a rising tide of interest in the occult and the embracing of what was known as the Catonic gods, the spirits from under the earth. This naturally led to a focus on Germanic racial superiority and the embracing of the blood and soil cult and opened the way for the ultimate rejection of the Jewish God in favor of the celebration of the German fatherland. The blood and soil was the ground from which would spring the resurrected old pagan gods. Racial supremacy wrought racial tensions, which then soon led to racial hatreds, finally manifested in racial genocide and world war. It matters what we believe, doesn't it? Culture comes from the cult. Religion results in lifestyle. This horror we all know from our recent history was foreseen over a hundred years before by the German-Jewish poet Heinrich Hein. He wrote in 1834 that the cross had only temporarily tamed the old Germanic gods of violence and war, but that the cross in cultural Germany was fragile and about to shatter. He then predicted that once that, quote, talisman, as he called it, of the cross shatters, then will burst forth the ancient Germanic berserker rage, Thor and Wotan rising from their ruins, and the whole world would be plunged into war. Well, Hein was right about almost everything that he wrote, even his reference to the cross as a German cultural, quote, talisman, was right, at least in the context of the nationalistic worldview that he lived in. For the German people, the cross had been reduced to a mere religious rabbit's foot, or even worse, an impotent symbol of a section of religious and political thought, among others, that had equal or superior symbols supplanting them. The Jewish Jesus was first ignored and then replaced with an Aryan, blonde-haired, blue-eyed representative of the blood and soil icon of racial perfection. Phrases like God as the spiritual force in nature led them to teachings such as that of Ernst Bergman, who stated that God must be understood as bisexual. A common marriage liturgy of the time praised to the Mother Earth, who lovingly bears us all, and to Father Heaven, who blesses us with all the good powers that inhabit the air, which rule over us and guide our destiny, end quote. This is nothing more or less than Earth Mother and Sky Father under principalities and powers of the air. 
Yes, they were certainly being guided into their destinies, all right. Into racial bloodbaths, bisexual destruction of the family, ultimate national doom. Jesus became the German hero figure, leading them into war against all who would not bow to German superiority. He was not the savior from sin. He was the example of heroism under pressure. In this sense, the cross was, for the German world, indeed a mere talisman and would certainly shatter because it was very fragile. Once it finally shattered, less than a hundred years after Heinz's prediction, Thor and Wotan rose with a fury that destroyed millions. The cross, the real cross, is not a talisman. It's not a symbol among other symbols. And the one who died upon it was not the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, golden boy of German racial idolatry. He was a Jew. He was also the God of the Jews and the Lord over all the nations. For those who understand this fact, then the cross is unbreakable. It is not in its true form only a mere socio-political preference, which when embraced enhances societal harmony, but can easily be broken if a higher, greater spiritual force comes in. No, it's never the real cross that is shattered. If the cross concept in a culture can be shattered, it is shattered only because the society which holds that cross is holding a false image. If properly understood, the cross has the power to overthrow evil, transform human souls, liberate slaves from demonic bondage, destroy kingdoms, and subdue nations. In other words, what it is doing. Of course, when we speak this way, we're not really referring to two pieces of wood joined together by cruel Roman hands for the express purpose of torture unto death. The cross in the New Testament shorthand terminology represents the entire event of the Incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection of the one whose cross it is. And just as the Germans slowly but surely lost their nation by losing the real cross, so the present body of Christ in America and in Europe is in danger. We lose the war when we lose the cross. We lose the cross when we lose the understanding of whose cross it is. The cross only has meaning because of the one who died upon it. It is too far afield from our study of the Incarnation to go into more detail than to just say this. There are great and foreboding parallels between the German church of pre-World War and the current church philosophies in America and in the West in general. I'll only take time to list them as a few examples, each one of them requires a full study. Number one, referring to God as the life force. Number two, an emphasis on racial identity over sinful identity. Number three, no need for a savior from sin, but we need a politico-economic savior. Number four, an appeal to ancient pre-Christian occult philosophies. And the door opened to this, of course, in the name of uh, inclusivity and uh, respect for other cultures. Number five, a hatred of all things Jewish, 
including the Old Testament scriptures. Number six, bisexuality in the spirit realm manifested in pansexual confusion, homosexuality, gender bending, and anti-marriage. Number seven, a de-emphasis on Jesus as Lord, but relegating him only to that of a great example of humanity, etc. So at this time of the year, when we focus on Christmas, Christ's Mass, there are two concepts we see in that term. The first is the word Mass, which comes from the Anglo-Saxon root, which literally means to be sent. So Christmas is Christ has been sent. The second, in most of our minds, is the idea of the Mass, which is death. He has been sent to die. Now, I'm not interested in engaging any of the many arguments over the validity or invalidity of the various celebrations and the many forms they take and the deformities that they often produce. I'm much more focused on the fact that we need a deeper, richer revelation of who it is that has been sent, who it is that has died, why he has died. And for that understanding, it is what we mean by the cross. To the degree that we all share a deep life-transforming grasp on the meaning of the cross by having a deep-rooted grasp as many as human, as much as humanly possible on the person on the cross, to that degree we hold to an unshakable reality and no mere socio-political talisman. And to the degree that we hold to it, to that degree it will hold us. And to the degree we know that and hold to it, to that degree also its power will be manifested to and through us for the overthrow of evil and the transformation of nations. We need not fear the German horror as a preview of what will ultimately inevitably come to America or to the West, but we need to pay attention to it as a preview of what we can refuse to allow if we choose to stand in the truth. P.T. Forsyth said, The feeble gospel preaches God is ready to forgive. The mighty gospel preaches God has redeemed. What did he mean by that? Well, the feeble gospel, the one so sadly often heard today, is that God is willing to save sinners and will forgive them if they come to him and ask for forgiveness. Then they can go to heaven when they die. Now, Please don't misunderstand. All that is true. But it's like saying the Pacific Ocean is moist. That is true, too. But it's an understatement not worth saying. The feeble gospel expresses a feeble understanding of salvation resulting in feeble conversions and feeble Christian influence in the world. All I want is to know that my sins are forgiven so that I can have a home in heaven when I die. That may sound sweet and humble and praiseworthy, and it might be for a little child a wonderful thing to hear uh, come from his mouth, but it has no place in the mouth of a grown man or woman who has gained a true understanding of the meaning of the cross, what happened there, or of who it happened through and what it happened for. 
The mighty gospel doesn't merely offer personal forgiveness of my sins so that I may personally go off to heaven when I die. Forsyth is saying, and I say with him, the mighty gospel, the gospel that would not break under the power of either German or American religious sophistry, says not that you can merely be forgiven and fly off to heaven at death, but that Christ has redeemed. He has taken back all territory once stolen by evil. He has destroyed principalities and powers and made an open show of them, triumphing over them in his cross. He has vanquished death and has, is now at the right hand of power in heaven to command every man everywhere to repent, for he has appointed a day in which he will judge all mankind and put right every wrong and punish every evil and destroy out of the universe all evidence of that which has been contrary to his goodness, his purity, and his love. So he has opened the way to eternal salvation to any and all who will respond to his mercy, and he extends the rod of his power and rule both to you and through you, and called you to occupy till he returns by discipling entire nations. That is the call of the gospel. As Abraham Kuyper summed it up, quote, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. If the enemy cannot completely extinguish the light of the gospel, he will settle for dimming it down to a mere shadowy cultural reflection of its original brilliance. If he cannot turn men and women into total demonic fools, he will settle for turning us into impotent, pietistic church mice. For so long as we are not set aflame by the light of the full, true gospel, he will settle for weak characters of redeemed people who are only looking forward to going to heaven when we die. Our vision for the kingdom must be formed by our vision of its king. So, in the time remaining... I want to offer some thoughts, thoughts which are too big for us to chew and too vitally important for us not to think about. There is a battle waged now against the triune God, the one true God of heaven and earth. All the powers of hell are set against the revelation of this one true and living God who has revealed himself first in his acts of creation, then in his special creation of man and woman, as his image, then in his calling of Abraham, then in his relationship to Israel, then in his holy scriptures, the law and the prophets, and finally in the person of Jesus Christ by coming into the earth. The spirit of Antichrist is fighting every level of divine self-revelation all at once now in an unprecedented attack not quite ever seen in history before. He attacks God as creator via pseudoscience. He attacks man and woman through sexual insanity. He attacks the very existence of all things Jewish. He attacks the authority and truth of scripture. And now in unprecedented ways, he attacks the person and identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, if not through blasphemy and open dis honor of him through the mouth of insipid comedians on television, 
then through the mouths of theologians and preachers who are not quite sure if it's important to believe whether Jesus was born of a virgin or that he was God in the flesh. What's really important is that we follow his loving example, etc., etc., ad nauseum. So let me make some basic statements about the revealed nature of God in order to get us moving in the right direction. There is only one God, and he has revealed himself as a trinity. God cannot be merely one in the numerical sense. For scripture reveals that God is love, not that he's loving, but that he is love itself. If he is love and he is only a numerical unity, who did he love before he created? Our humanity is a reflection of his heart and his nature. We are three in one. We're spirit, soul, and body. One being, three aspects of our nature. Families are a picture of this. Father, mother, child. There are mere imperfect images of the triune God as these that I've already mentioned. There are many more fingerprints of the triune God throughout creation. Harmony, melody, and rhythm in music. Uh, Aspects of the light patterns in the universe that are three yet one. But these are only images. We will still disintegrate, though, if we fail to live in accord with God's revelation of himself in and to us. Now, we obviously can't sum up the mystery of God in an outline, but a few important facts need to be considered. As Tozer said, what we think about God is the most important thing about us. How we view God determines our emotional and spiritual well-being or lack of it. So here's a few thoughts we need to consider. A lack of awe produces sloppy sentimentalism. But a lack of love produces an unhealthy fear. We need help in gaining both awe and in receiving love. The incarnation is the place we have to look for the bringing together of both awe and love. If we think of Jesus as God Jr., we will not gain awe and love. We will fall short of that reality. If we think of Jesus as coming to save us from the wrath of God, we will not come into a place of love fully. If we understand God was fully present in Christ, not as water is present in a glass, but as God was fully present in the person of Christ, coming after you to rescue you and restore you to himself, if you understand that, then you begin to get a picture of it. Struggling with concepts that are beyond us is something we've got to learn to do if we haven't already begun to wrestle with it. We need to, we need to wrestle with it. We need to struggle through these issues. And I meet Christians all the time who don't struggle with these issues, who have not attempted to, or they have attempted it, found it difficult, and dropped the subject. And they live, therefore, in a twilight instead of light. They live in a hope for 
love instead of love. They live in uh, groveling fear instead of holy awe. And they don't really live fully, obviously, from, from, from those standpoints. To wrestle through hard issues is the way to grow spiritual muscle. Learning to think through difficult questions and even painful conflicts within yourself that result in conflicts with those you interact with over those subjects is a vitally important thing. I want to read a, a, a chapter from Nabil Qureshi's wonderful book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. If you don't have it, please get it. You can order it from Christian book distributors at a very, for a very small amount of money. But uh, you need to get copies and give them away. Not only is this a wonderful book of testimony of Nabil's conversion, but it will give you a a much-needed education into how to interact with Muslims. But Nabil writes here about this conflict that he entered into with his friend David over the deity of Christ and the Trinity. He says here, As with the doctrine of Jesus' deity, a strong aversion to the Trinity was woven into my Muslim identity and made for a latent landmine. The core doctrine of Islam is Tawheed. A whole field of Islamic theology is dedicated to this topic, so it is difficult to encapsulate, but essentially Tawheed is the doctrine of God's oneness. This is not merely an affirmation of monotheism, but a thoroughgoing cultivation of the concept of God's absolute unity. God's essence, or the very thing that makes him God, is that he is one, independent, unique, sovereign, set apart, and completely unified. There can be no division within him whatsoever. Distilling this theology in the context of Muslim-Christian dialogue boils down to this. Tawhid, Islam's most fundamental principle, is antithetical to the Trinity. Growing up in an ostensibly Christian nation, my Muslim elders galvanized me against the Trinity. I can recall many gatherings, classes at youth camps, religious education books, and Koran studies dedicated to rebutting the Trinity. But they all taught the same thing. The Trinity is thinly veiled polytheism. Roughly, they taught me to see the Trinity like this. Christians want to worship Jesus in addition to God, but they know there is only one God. So they say God is, at the same time, both three and one, calling him a trinity. Even though this makes no sense, Christians insist that it is so. When asked to explain the trinity, they will say it's a mystery and that it needs to be accepted with faith. As a young Muslim in the West, I set out to confront this. Whenever I had a discussion about the trinity with Christians, the first question I asked was, is the trinity important to you? When they replied affirmatively, I asked, how important? Anticipating the response that it would be heretical to deny the Trinity. The third question uh, completed the setup. I would ask, so what is the Trinity? And would receive the road answer that God is three in one. Then the coup de grace. What does that mean? 
I usually got blank stares. Sometimes people would start talking about eggs and water, but no one ever was able to explain what the doctrine of the Trinity actually meant. Three what in one what? And how is that not self-contradictory? My questions were not obtrusive questions on a peripheral topic. They were simply questions of clarification on essential Christian doctrine. Yet no Christian I met growing up was able to answer them. That means every Christian I encountered bolstered what the Koran had taught me about the Trinity, that it was a ridiculous doctrine and it merited divine retribution. Now, I know I'm quoting a long text here, but it's worth your time to keep listening. Beale is describing what happened to him in a physics and chemistry class after this argument about the Trinity. He says, Projected in the front of the room were three large depictions of nitrate in bold black and white. We were studying resonance, the configuration of electrons in certain molecules. The basic concept of resonance is easy enough to understand, even without background in chemistry. Essentially, the building block of every physical object is an atom, a positively charged nucleus orbited by tiny, negatively charged electrons. Atoms bound to one another by sharing their electrons, forming a molecule. Different arrangements of the electrons in certain molecules are called resonance structures. Some molecules, like water, have no resonance, while others have three resonance structures or more, like the nitrate on the board. Although the concept was easy enough to grasp, the reality proved to be baffling. Mrs. Ademsky concluded her lesson by commenting, quote, These drawings are just the best way to represent resonance structures on paper, but it's actually much more complicated. Technically, a molecule with resonance is every one of its structures at every point in time, yet no single one of its structures at any point in time. The rest of the class must have had the same expressions on their faces that I did because Mrs. Ademsky repeated herself. It's all the structures all the time, never just one of them. After another brief pause, she afforded us some reassurance. But don't worry about that. You're only going to be tested on the structures we can draw. To which the class gave a collective sigh of relief, but not me. I turned to David, unable to get past what Mrs. Ademsky had just said. David suddenly shrugged and returned his attention to the professor as she moved to the next topic. It appeared I was the only one still thinking about the bomb she had just dropped. How could something be many things at once? Many different things. We were not talking about the attributes of something like a steak, which can be hot, juicy, thick, and tender all at once. We were talking about separate spatial and electrical arrangements. What the professor said would be akin to saying that Nabil is eating said steak in Texas while simultaneously napping in a hammock in the Caribbean.
as wonderful as each would be individually, it made no sense to say that I might be doing both at the same time. I was perplexed, and what made it even worse was that no one around me seemed bothered in the least. I looked around the room, amazed at their blind acceptance. But was it really blind? The professor was teaching rarefied science, describing the subatomic world. At that level, things happen that make no sense to those of us who conceptualize the world at only a human level. Even the apparently simple idea of atoms is baffling when we think about it. It means that the chair I'm sitting on is not actually a solid object innocently supporting my weight. It's almost entirely empty space occupied only in a small part by particles moving at incomprehensible speeds. When we think about it, it seems wrong, but it's just the way things are in our universe. There's no use arguing about it. I turned my glance away from the other students, concluding that they had not blindly accepted a nonsensical concept. They had just realized before I did that there are truths about our universe that do not fit easily into our minds. My eyes rested on the three separate structures of nitrate on the wall, my mind assembling the pieces One molecule of nitrate is all three resonance structures all the time and never just one of them. The three are separate, but all the same, they are one. They are three in one. Three in one. That's when it clicked. If there are things in this world that can be three in one, even incomprehensibly so, then why can't God? And just like that, the Trinity became potentially true in my mind. I looked over at David and decided to say nothing. My reason for strongly recommending Nabil's book is not only because it's a great story and a great education regarding Islam versus Christianity, but because it illustrates so well what I'm appealing to for us to do, and that is to wrestle with the huge, hard questions that we have simply ignored or taken for granted. We need to do this for two reasons. First, in order to truly know what we believe and why we believe it. And two, to be able then to have a ready answer to give to those who more and more are going to be asking the really hard questions. And they won't throw softballs. They won't hesitate to ask hard questions and to press us on every level where they think we are weak or indecisive or, most of all, hypocritical. And that's good. That's good both for them, the questioners, and for us who claim to have answers. If we lack the power of awe and wonder that energizes our devotion on the heart level, we'll find ourselves running out of steam when the pressure is on us on the head level. Hebrews 11 tells us that Moses endured the pressures of Egypt by seeing him who is invisible. And we can do the same. Physics professor Dr. Frank Tipler describes in his book, The Physics of Christianity, that the concept of the singularity is that force which is outside of time and space 
and is not subject to any of the laws of physics, but is the fountainhead of those laws. He speaks of three, for lack of a better term, three positionings of the single singularity. One at the beginning, one during the duration, and one at the omega point. But he stresses, as do all physicists that try to describe the indescribable, like Nabil's professor in the classroom, that these three are not just one in essence. They are one and the same, yet distinctly three in certain ways. This reality brought Dr. Tipler out of atheism and to Christian faith. In Professor Tipler's words, this, quote, cosmological singularity is the stabilizing power of the universe, or as Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 puts it, Jesus Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. Or as Paul says in Colossians 1.17, he is before all things, and by him all things are held together. We all come to the Lord from different angles. Mary began her walk of faith in Christ as a young girl who needed to know his love and presence because she moved so much. Later, she came into a much deeper sense of awe and reverence. But I, on the other hand, was gripped by the majesty and glory of God, but it took me a long, hard journey before I came to any degree of what it meant to sense his personal love and care for me. Mary and I are both arriving at the same place, love and awe, awe and love, but in nearly opposite order. But it's not so important what the order may be so long as the truth of both God's majesty and his compassion become real to us. I became aware years ago that there was an imbalance in much of the body of Christ reflected in the need for Jesus to be seen as a real human being, a real Jewish man who lived a real Jewish life in the context of simple uh, Second Temple Israel. In some circles, Jesus had been communicated so much as the Son of God that his true humanity, which is just as vital in the equation as his deity, was nearly lost. But in another part of the church, I became aware of a tendency to see Jesus as the, quote, second person of the Trinity doctrinally. But somehow that ended up in the minds of people as Jesus as God Jr. Understandably, but still erroneously, Jesus was seen as a junior partner who for some reason loved humans and who came to save us from the wrath of the senior partner, God the Father. The idea of Jesus and God... Even that terminology is wrong. Jesus is God. But the idea of Jesus and God being in any sense at odds in their affections is totally wrong. But the light of the truth gets bent when it goes through the deforming, broken shards of our soul's imagination. And images that we develop in our minds are, to say the least, inaccurate. Images I saw of religious paintings seemed to make it even worse. An old man on a big throne flanked by a younger man on a smaller seat next to him with a bird flying around their head. That was supposed to be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
This is a lot like the story we hear sometimes of the Sunday school teacher who asks his grammar school age children to draw their favorite Bible story. And somebody draws a picture of David with his sling and somebody draws a picture of uh, Noah on the ark. But one little boy drew a picture of an old man driving a car with two stick figures in the back seat. When he asked what that meant, he said, well, this is God driving Adam and Eve out of the garden. Funny for kids. Not funny for us when we still have stick figures of the heart of God misshaping our own hearts from a lack of understanding and worse, a lack of interest to change our understanding. Now, many years later, after a return to a proper emphasis on the humanity of Jesus, the pendulum has swung a bit too far in that direction, and I find myself sometimes having to stand against a near denial of his divinity. In fact, in some circles of Jewish roots movements, uh, there is such an enamorment and misunderstanding of the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, that it has resulted in a true denial of Jesus in his divinity. This is not only unnecessary once a proper understanding of the Shema is gained, but it is dangerously close to denying the Lord who bought us. It's both his deity and his humanity that make him able to save us. I can't understand anyone who would wish to deny the breathtaking reality of God becoming man. I can remember sitting as a boy in the darkened church auditorium hearing the Christmas music being presented by our choir. It was certainly not the overpowering quality of the music that gripped me. As hard as they worked to make it good, and they did work to make it good, but it wasn't the kind of thing that would grip you from an aesthetic point of view. No, it was the words, the power of those words, the otherworldly revelation of those words. Or I should say more correctly, it wasn't the words, it was the living word. Nothing in my 12-year-old psyche was prepared for what those revelations did to me. Hush, my soul, behold the wonder, there within a manger stall, Son of God, great Creator, Prince of Peace and Lord of all. Once he flung the stars in heaven, sent the planets on their way. And by the time they got to that line, sent the planets on their way, my whole body shook with a revelation of the holy mystery. Hours after, I would think of that phrase and still shudder from the majesty of it. I didn't even understand it. But the power of its own self-revealed glory was moving my insides into position so that my brain could begin to gain an understanding later. But the revelation came before my mind could even chew on it. The original sense of awe has never left me or dimmed in me. Later, that same Christmas season, through another song, it happened again. There was a dear old German man who sang bass in the choir, and as he sang his solo to We Three Kings, this time I was nearly reduced to sobs. I held them under control, of course, because I was the 12-year-old boy who could not possibly bear to cry in front of people. But as I heard those words again, it was not the emotional response to moving music. It was the word. Glorious now, behold him arise, King and God and sacrifice. 
over and over those words replayed inside my mind till my heart was so overwhelmed with their majestic meaning. Again, a meaning I could not have explained or even grasped inside myself, but a meaning I knew was so real and so powerful that I never wanted to live without knowing it and entering into it more deeply. King and God and sacrifice. Later, that same Christmas week, it hit me just one more time. Once again, as any 12-year-old boy would, I nearly burst my eardrums from trying to hold the sobs inside me rather than cry in front of people. Of course, it was always a shock to realize nobody was paying any attention to me anyway. But as the congregation stood together to sing, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. But then I wasn't prepared for the next phrase, and another wave hit me. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. The sobs came, but thankfully no one noticed. I was glad to be invisible and unnoticed at that moment, though, because not only because I was terrified of being seen crying, but mostly because I didn't want anybody interfering with what was happening in me. I was being visited, moved upon, taken up, not by words, but by the living word, that same word that we were singing about, that word that had flung the stars in heaven and sent the planets on their way was moving down upon me personally, placing himself inside me. I was baptized not long after that. And though I joke about 12-year-olds in Baptist churches going through a rote Baptist bar mitzvah at 12, mine was very real, and I knew it was real. The sexual and emotional brokenness of my neighborhood and my boyhood that had deformed my life didn't vanish or wash away in the waters of baptism, not emotionally or psychologically. The war had only just begun for my mind and body, the duplicity and the dichotomy between what I felt in my heart and soul and what I was experiencing still in my daily life was in total opposition to each other. I was so ashamed of the mixture that I felt that I was. The following Christmas, a year later, we went down to LSU at the direction of our music teacher to hear something called Handel's Messiah. There I sat again, me and a handful of boys my own age, all with skulls full of 60s rock and roll mush, from the Beatles to the animals, from Hermit's Hermits to Steppenwolf. I surrounded myself with like-minded rock and rollers, bored guys wishing they could be somewhere else, But as the Baroque orchestra began and the choral voices filled the music hall, this time the music quality, even for a teenage rock and roller, was pretty impressive. But again, it wasn't the music that had me melting inside. It was, I was so thankful for the darkness of the auditorium. Again, it was the word. Not the words, the living word. And he shall purify the sons of Levi, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. 
And I heard him whisper to me in all my mixture of sin and brokenness, this is what I will do for you. And I knew he would somehow, someday. And he did. In conclusion, Psalm 8 asks a very important question. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you would care for him? Now and then, thankfully not as often as I used to hear it, but still too often, I will hear some preacher or Bible teacher say something to the effect of, we need to come to the place where we understand that we don't matter at all. It's all about him, not about us. Now, I respectfully listen to that, and I do understand it, or at least I think I understand it, that what they're trying to do is help us repent of what has become our ego-centered self-focus in this culture. Paul did warn us, didn't he, that our generation would be, quote, lovers of self, Second Timothy 3. But on the other hand, it simply makes no sense at all to say that humanity, and that means you, doesn't matter. That it's all only about God. Now, of course, ultimately, everything is all only about God in a certain sense. But the problem with that is this. God is the one who says things like, for God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. Or through Paul, he says that he loved us and gave himself for us. So that now, this moment, there is a human being sitting on the throne of the universe. And Ephesians 2 says, we are seated with him in heavenly places if we are united to him. I'm just not so sure saying nothing of man really matters. Saying that man has really no value, no meaning. Uh, they don't say it that way, but that's how it comes across is really a wise way to try to rein in our egocentrism. Would it not be wiser and better and more scriptural to say, as Oswald Chambers has, that man is a glorious ruin? Yes, we are ruined by the fall. But like all ruins, we refer to ruins because in that rubble and brokenness, we can still see the broken image of what was intended. And the first Adam brought death. The last Adam, who loved to call himself, by the way, the son of man, because he loved to identify with man in that way. This last Adam was, before his descent into the womb of Mary, the Alpha and the Omega, the creator of heaven and earth, the one in whose image and likeness the first Adam was designed to be formed into, what is it about our humanity that would cause the Almighty God to descend into the womb of a woman and be born of her as man? God did not do this because he was attracted to man, for heaven's sakes. If man had some beauty that God lacked, uh, that would be an erotic brokenness in God trying to fix himself by connecting to that which he's attracted to. Agape, the love of God, is not erotic. It has no need. 
It is not a love which is stirred into action because it sees the beautiful and wants to obtain it, then goes after it, like Eros does. Agape does not give out of its own need. It gives out of its abundance. God loves man. God loves you. Now, how that can be is a useless endeavor to even ask. We, we don't know. Can't figure it out. But that it is true is manifested by the astounding fact that he became man. Almighty God took upon himself the form of a man, Philippians 2 tells us, laid aside his prerogatives as God, and fully identified with man so much so that something new has come into existence that had never existed before. God and man in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the intention of that enthroned man upon the throne of God is that of bringing with him many sons and daughters to that same glory. So this holiday season, as you contemplate the meaning of the Incarnation in all the different forms of celebration that that takes, consider this. You were created by God in his own image and likeness for a purpose that is revealed in Christ and is still unfolding, in which God fully intends to be so united with you that you and he are one, just as Jesus and the Father are one, and that you and all you love are held together in that circle of completion and wholeness and holiness forever. It does not yet appear what we shall be, But we know when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That mystery, that wonder, that destiny should take you from an observation of the cradle and the manger and the baby, through the cross and the empty tomb, all the way to the throne, all the way home. With that in mind, God bless you all. May you have a blessed and joyful celebration of the Incarnation. God bless you. Lord willing, we'll talk again soon. Thank you.